um, entitled Hard Questions, Honest Answers. And today we look at a really, really controversial one. Why should I vote if I don't like the candidates? Now, I will tell you, I prepared this message this week and had no idea what would happen on Friday. And most of you know what happened on Friday. Uh, the revelation about Donald Trump and the decade-old things that he said that were horrible. Uh, the revelation about uh, the emails that came about Hillary Clinton from Julian Assange and WikiLeaks. Uh, everything that was was uh, cont contentious about the campaign just ratcheted up a thousandfold. I prepared this before all those things took place on, on Friday. And I, I want, I want to re remind you about the genesis of this series. I passed out three by five cards earlier in the summer. And I said, what are your top questions? And this was one of those questions that came in with the cards. Why should I vote? if I don't like the candidates. Now, I want to tell you my, my personal interest in this question. Three years ago, I had an incredible privilege, and uh, I got the opportunity to give the opening prayer uh, before a session of the U.S. House of Representatives. I felt honored and grateful for the opportunity to do this, but that experience did something to me. It fueled my curiosity about how Washington works and about the historical documents that serve as the foundation for our country. Over the past several years, Cindy and I have made several trips to Washington, D.C. with this group called the Wake America and the Capital Connect group that actually goes and prays with senators and congressmen in their offices about their agenda, both Democratic and Republican, Christian and non-Christian, although most of the non-Christian Representatives don't want to pray with us. Um, we still make contacts with them. I'm always going with this in mind. First Chronicles 12:32. The sons of Issachar understood the signs of the times and knew what Israel should be. I want to be one of those leaders that understands the signs of the times and knows what we as followers of Christ should do in an incredibly complicated election campaign. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to talk about this, and I want to, I want to give you uh, two ground rules. I will not tell you who to vote for. I won't. I won't tell you who to vote for. You all are adults. You can make your own decision. And we prize in our country the opportunity to have a secret place to vote where nobody knows who we voted for. I'm going to respect your adult-like status not tell you who to vote for. But what I do want to do is I want to give you what I feel are some biblical and ethical concepts about how you cast your vote. What do you think about when you go into a voting booth? How do you think? What are the ethics of voting as a follower of Jesus Christ? Let me just say that I hear an ominous trend taking place among some Christians. What they say is, I, 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 I hate this. I hate where we are. And, and they want to act above the fray. They want to act as if they're above the political back and forth and the debate. And I will tell you, I think that is a very dangerous place to be. 
The way our government was founded requires a robust citizenship among its most principled citizens. For you to say, uh, I'm, I'm going to be above it all, I'm not going to get involved, is the opposite of what the founding fathers knew was required in the kind of government we have, which is a constitutional republic. So in 35 days, you go to the voting booth. How should you think about casting your vote? Well, I want to ask and answer three questions with one brief interlude in the middle. And I'm going to ask the first question as a very, very big question. And the first question is this. Are we a Christian nation? Are we? And if we, if we were in some sense a Christian nation, what, what difference would that make? I will tell you, historically, this was not a controversial question. Um, I've used this example before, but Chief Justice Josiah Brewer in 1892 said this, these and many other matters which might be noticed add a volume of unofficial declarations to the mass of organic utterances that this is a Christian nation. Now, I find the wording very interesting when he says unofficial declarations and organic utterances. He's looking at the vast verbiage in pop culture, so to speak. And he's saying it would appear that our culture is a Christian culture. Well, in what sense would that be the case? When you think about a Christian nation, that can be used in five different ways, four of which are wrong. Way number one is, well, maybe the majority of citizens in the U.S. are Christians. No, that is not the case. According to a 2011 uh, Pew poll, 27% of Americans identify with Christ in a narrow sense. In other words, that Jesus Christ is their Lord. Well, the majority of the people in the U.S. are not Christians. They might loosely identify in some sense, with an aspect of the Christian faith. Are they authentic Christians? Obviously not. We are not a Christian nation in that sense. Well, maybe Christianity is the established national religion. Obviously, that's not the case. We do not have a church of the United States of America. Thankfully, we don't have that. England has that. It's a mess. Germany has that. It's a mess. Sweden has that. It's a mess. We don't have that, thankfully, in our country. We're not a Christian country in the sense that we have an established religion. Well, maybe most people in America embrace Christian values. That's obviously not the case. We live in a country where it would appear that most people don't really embrace Christian values. Now, don't get me wrong. There's a lot of people in America doing a lot of really amazing things. And every time I come back from being in a place like Cuba, I'm deeply thankful that there is an ethos in our country of service, whether you're Christian or non-Christian. That's amazing. I love that about our country. But most people in America don't thoroughly embrace Christian values. Maybe a remnant, but not authentic Christian values. Maybe God has a special covenant with America. Maybe we are the new Israel. Maybe we are 
God's new chosen people. There's no way that you can derive that either from the Bible or from history. But, but what, about, what about a fifth way? What about a fifth way? Is it possible that we could say, well, there's a Christian component to our nation because of the worldview embedded within the founding documents? That is a very interesting question. We have two primary founding documents, the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. These two documents are unique not just within Western literature, they're unique within all of Western civilization. There are no documents that remotely resemble these two documents um, because of the astonishing liberties that they have provided over the past 250 years. Where did those documents come from? Documents like this don't just, don't just emerge out of thin air. Where do these two documents come from? Well, they have an intellectual foundation. And the intellectual foundation came from a worldview that was distinctly Christian in the mid-1700s. So I'll give you a little bit of background. Um, in the 1730s, there was an event that took place in America called the First Great Awakening. John Wesley and George Whitfield are credited with the founding of this Great Awakening. George Whitfield, poor guy, always had his eyes sort of cross-eyed in all of his paintings. But the guy who really was the, the guy was John Wesley. Uh, Whitfield was amazing, but Wesley created a movement. And Wesley and Whitfield would do open-air preaching in America, and they would have tens of thousands of people coming. Now, this, this painting does not even begin to show the number of people that would listen to Whitfield and Wesley when they came to America. Benjamin Franklin um, heard Whitfield, and he said, I, I think this guy could probably preach to 25,000, 30,000 people, and everybody could hear him. That was his voice. When he came to America at the age of 24 years old in 1739, this guy was a rock star. You know, Ron, Ron Howard has just put out a new uh, movie about the Beatles, their touring years. I saw an excerpt last night, and it astonishes me how people responded to the Beatles when the Beatles came to Shea Stadium in 1964. It's amazing. Some of you well remember the Ed Sullivan Show. You know where you were when you saw the Beatles in the Ed Sullivan Show. When Whitfield came to Philadelphia when he was 24 years old, he was a rock star. And people by the tens of thousands came to hear him. So what was the effect of the Great Awakening? The effect was that many, many people came to faith in Christ, including our founding fathers. And those who did not come to Christ, many of them embraced a Judeo-Christian worldview, even though they did not trust Christ, and they lived as if the Judeo-Christian worldview was true. And therefore, in many ways, the founding documents that we have in the United States happened in a bubble of time that could have occurred in very few other times in world history, where many of the intellectual giants of our day, many of them, embraced faith in Christ or at least bought into 
the worldview. And, and what was that worldview as applied to politics? Well, here's some, not all, but here's some. Because we humans are made in the image of God, we are capable of self-government. We have the ability to exercise self-government. Now, that was not a worldview that was present in other political ideologies. It was un a uniquely Christian worldview, but it did require moral foundation. Another part of the worldview, because the Bible was the most read book in the colonies, people had the theological categories to make wise choices. You read some of the writings of the colonial period and you realize that people, farmers, tradesmen, printers, were steeped in the language of the Bible. Because God is the third component, because God is the ultimate judge, our elected officials are accountable for their actions. They're not above the law. Many times kings in, in Europe were above the law. Uh, not in the worldview of the founding fathers who looked toward the worldview of the Bible. Elected representatives are accountable for their actions. Another one, because we humans are sinful, we need checks and balances within our system of government. Those are just, just a few of the worldview elements that were set in place by the Great Awakening. Now, I just have to tell you how thoroughly this was embedded into the culture. Um, Thomas Jefferson, not a Christian. I have always said that a studious perusal of the sacred volume, he meant the Bible, will make us into better citizens, better fathers, and better husbands. Jefferson, certainly not a follower of Jesus Christ, had a very positive view of at least parts of the Bible. He sometimes took a scissor to the miracles because he didn't like the miracles. But he had amazing things to say about a good portion of the Bible. John Adams, our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It's wholly inadequate for the government of any other. Interestingly, uh, the Federalist Papers give us a statistical way of measuring the worldview of the Founding Fathers. You know this, the, the Federalist Papers are 85 documents written by Alexander Hamilton, John Jay, and James Madison, and they were designed for the ratification of the Constitution. And they were, these are, I don't know if you've ever read these. I mean, I, when I read these, I've got to slow way, way down. They are the most tightly written, intellectually robust documents I've ever read. They're amazing. And they quote brilliant philosophers, Cicero and Montesquieu and others. But the most oft-quoted authority for their political science is the Bible, which has there's about 37% of the quotes come from the Bible. A statistical way just to look at the robust biblical worldview embraced by our founding fathers. So the bottom line is that our country's founding documents are undergirded by a robustly Christian worldview. Now, do people practice this in our country today? Of course not. Do our candidates embrace this today? Wow, you've all read what happened on Friday. But because of the intellectual worldview of the founding fathers, it is because of this that we embrace this notion of American exceptionalism. Now, hear me out on this. 
American exceptionalism doesn't mean that we are cooler than every other nation on, on the planet. Doesn't mean that, never has. American exceptionalism isn't the patriotic feeling that we get when we chant USA, USA. That's not American exceptionalism. American exceptionalism means that out of all the countries in the world, this country was uniquely founded on principles that derive from human beings made in the image of God. It, our country was not an, an accident of geography. It was not the result of a war being fought and won. It was founded upon principles that derive from a Judeo-Christian worldview. Well, what does that mean? It means the idea of America is the state is not absolute. It means the idea of America is that rights come not from the state, they come from God. It's the idea that, that the state exists under God and is accountable to God, and the citizens have the checks and balances against the state to say, no, you, you can't do that. The Constitution says that is beyond the boundaries of what you are able to do. American exceptionalism takes us one step further. Embedded in our national ethos is the idea that our country is blessed to be a blessing. Now think about this for a second. What American exceptionalism says is that our country was blessed not just to hoard our blessings, but to be a conduit of blessings to other nations around the world. Whether we do that or not is immaterial. That's the ethos that was contained in this notion of American exceptionalism. I'll give you, give you one example. What's the motto of the Navy? A global force for good. Now, I, I just want you to, to, to ask the question, would that have been the ethos of Chairman Mao's China in the 50s and 60s? Not a chance. Could, would that have been the ethos of Idi Amin's Uganda back in the 70s? Not a chance. The very fact that we could have a statement like that and that statement be accepted within the wider culture is evidence of the idea that American exceptionalism is the notion that we are blessed to be a blessing, just like Abraham was in Genesis chapter 3. But here's the downside. The downside is that this reality of having a constitutional republic founded on Judeo-Christian moral principles makes our republic extraordinarily fragile, very fragile. When the Constitution was, was completed in 1787, Benjamin Franklin exited Philadelphia. A woman came up to him, a well-known woman in Philadelphia. Dr. Franklin, what have you given us? What kind of government? He said, it's a republic, madam, if you can keep it. Uh, that idea um, is, the fragility of that is, is pretty clear. If you can keep the republic, you know, that just underscores the fragility of it. Abraham Lincoln said the same thing in his Gettysburg Address. By the way, Rufus Fears of, of OU said that there is a third founding document. It's a refounding document, and it's the Gettysburg Address. Whether that's true or not, it's somewhat controversial. But Lincoln at least said, you know, uh, can it long endure? 
There's a fragility about our constitutional republic. It works if citizens uh, use their freedoms and robustly steward those freedoms. That leads to our second question. Second question is, what is the role of a follower of Christ then in our nation? We got these two founding documents that are, that are crucial. What's our role? Our role is steward. 1 Corinthians 4 verse 2, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. That they be found faithful. So um, if you aspire to be a faithful follower of Christ, it is incumbent upon I think, followers of Jesus as citizens to steward those liberties. In other words, you don't say, I'm going to live above the fray. Uh, I'm somehow going to be involved in the robust stewardship of my liberties. Well, how, how does that work? Well, let me just take you to Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 through 30 for a second. In the parable, a man, a wealthy man leaves. He goes to a far-off place. And he gives his servants resources, five talents, two talents, one talent. A talent was worth approximately a quarter million dollars. It's a lot of money. He leaves, they invest. He leaves and they begin to find returns on the money. Well, the first two do, the third one does not. Five-talent guy earns five more talents, two-talent guy earns to more talents, master returns, he's very fired up. He praises the first two servants, but to the third guy, he says, you were a bad servant. You, you squandered the money. Now, what are the talents in that parable? The talents are the assets that we have that make our life valuable, beneficial, good. They're the things like our physical bodies, our time, our money, our assets, our material assets, maybe, maybe it's our education, maybe it's the family background that we had. Those are talents. But one of the talents that we have as citizens in this country is that we have a say in how our country is, is run. Now, how do, you, how do you maximize the use of the liberties that you have? Well, I would say one basic way is that you use your freedom to the glory of God. A lot of you are doing that. You're using your freedom to the glory of God. You're raising your family to the glory of God. You're using your money to the glory of God. You're using your talents to the glory of God. You're doing that. One of the ways you steward your citizenship in this country is by doing what you do to the glory of God as free individuals. That's a good thing and something not to be taken for granted. However, because our liberties are very very fragile. It's also incumbent upon us to preserve those liberties through civic action. The most basic one is voting. Eric Metaxas put it this way. He said, the founders understood that the republic that came into being in 1787 could not continue long if every American did not make the business of that republic his or her business. As I've said before, I have, I've heard a lot of people say, you know, I'm done. I'm done with the political process. I'm through. I'm withdrawing. I'm going to be above the fray. 
I just have to tell you, the kind of constitutional republic that we were given by the founders means that you can't do that because others will arise with other principles that you may not like. You must robustly be involved in your citizenship in order to preserve our country, and it's required of stewards that they be found faithful. So, let me just take a brief interlude and think about how to do this in a realistic way. I, I hear lots of objections when people talk about, about voting, and one objection is this. I can't vote for candidate X because this person drives me crazy. They just drive me crazy. They grate against everything I believe in. Well, <clears throat> every candidate has flaws. There's a guy that I read at Wheaton College um, named Robert McKenzie. I don't agree with everything he says, but McKenzie is a very fine historian. And McKenzie wrote a piece called Voter Anger in 1776. And I read some of the things that Thomas Paine said against George Washington. And Paine called Washington the most horrible names. I've then gone and read about some of the political rhetoric when John Adams and Thomas Jefferson were going back and forth. Je Adams and Jefferson became great friends at the end, but in the presidential campaign leading up to this election of 1800, they were at each other saying outrageous things. This is part and parcel of every election in American history. We, we don't like it now because we have social media and we have constant, you know, cameras in our face. But I will tell you, reading the, the, the amount of history that I've read, many candidates have come into this season of the election cycle saying outrageous things about each other and doing outrageous things. So part of what this means is that we can't look at this emotionally. Citizens don't make good decisions when they only look at things emotionally. Second objection, I'm tired of voting for the least worst candidate. I'm not gonna vote if I have to vote for the least worst candidate. Now, some, sometimes people will act as if, you know, I have to vote for that perfect candidate as if we're wanting to usher in utopia. Utopia's not coming. Heaven's coming. The new heavens and the new earth are coming. It's going to be great in the new heavens and the new earth. And Jesus is going to lead as the perfect leader. Until that time, imperfect candidates are going to rise up to the top. It takes a narcissist to run for president. It does. It takes somebody, and I, and I use narcissist not in the, I, in, in the term that, that says uh, you got to really believe you got something to say and do if you're going to run for the, for, for the presidency of the United States. I'm not using narcissist in the pejorative sense. I'm using it in a, in, in a different sense. you got to be confident, and many confident candidates are woefully imperfect. What I'm saying is that if you're going to vote wisely, you have to take the emotion out of it. 
you've got to look at principles. You have to look at policies. You have to look at the effects of the choice of a candidate. So that leads us to uh, the third question. And the third question is, okay, so what are the hierarchy of values? I'm going to give you five. Now, these five, I think, are the right five hierarchically. Look, if you're a follower of Christ, maybe you can come up with a different hierarchy based upon the Bible. What I'm saying to you, if you are going to vote wisely as a follower of Jesus, you must come up with your biblical hierarchy of values and then vote those values. Uh, here are the ones that I see are predominant in the scriptures. Uh, first value, human life. Human life. God says human life is sacred. God makes human beings in his image. Life begins at conception. So one of the questions that you ask when evaluating a candidate is, which candidate is most likely to promote values that are consistent with life? That's hierarchy number one. Hierarchy number two is marriage as defined by Jesus. Which candidate is most likely to promote policies that lead to marriage as defined by Jesus. Now, there's a pragmatic reason why nations should protect monogamous, heterosexual marriage. There's a reason. And the reason is sociological. A number of people have written about this. They don't get a lot of press. But David P. Goldberg is, uh, Goldman is one who wrote a book called How Civilizations Die. And what Goldberg, what Goldman said was that sociologically, those nations that stop having an abundance of kids begin to go into demographic winter and ultimately demographic death. And there's a lot of nations that are entering into demographic winter and demographic death. And one of the reasons why marriage is important, heterosexual monogamous marriage is important, is because nations survive when good people have children thinking about the blessings of the next generation. But that's not the only reason. Obviously, marriage is an institution designed by God, and God creates marriage to be an illustration of His triunity. So there are sociological and theological reasons. But as you evaluate a candidate, Yes, the question, which candidate is most likely to promote policies that embrace a Judeo-Christian biblical view of marriage? Here's value number three, religious liberty. Which candidate will best preserve religious liberty? Now, let me, let me give you two things that, um, that I think are kind of interesting, the, the two cases of ominous political discourse. One is this, pronouns and pastors, Massachusetts law threatens churches over transgenderism. When we see uh, um, things like this, we, we ought to be really concerned about the state wanting to interfere in the practice of the free practice of, of religion. That, the, the article is a great article. 
But followers of Christ ought to say, huh, if I'm going to steward my citizenship along the lines of the founding documents, I ought to be very concerned about that. Another political rhetoric. Rights have to exist in practice, not just on paper. Laws have to be backed up with resources and political will. Deep-seated cultural codes, religious beliefs, and structural biases have to be changed. We ought to be concerned about political rhetoric that talks about political will shifting the free exercise of religion in our country. One more. U.S. Civil Rights Commission says deeply held Christian faith is a code for bigotry. Well, whenever you introduce the B word, the bigotry word, into the national conversation, that, that becomes a very challenging thing for our national discourse. It runs really contrary to the kind of discourse that was present with the Founding Fathers. Here's a fourth value, appointment of Supreme Court justices. Um, there are two views. One view says we look at the founding documents as being authoritative, and we will live by those as intended by the authors. Another one says, um, these are fluid documents, and we need, we need to change these based upon the currents within the culture, which means the documents don't really mean anything. So one of the things you ask as a follower of Christ is, okay, if I'm to steward these documents, which candidate is most likely to appoint justices that have an originalist view of the Constitution? Here's a fifth value, genuine economic freedom. Why, why would I include genuine, genuine economic freedom? God loves the widow and the orphan. He loves the widow and the orphan. And there are two different ideas about, about take, taking care of widows and orphans. One idea is that we redistribute wealth taking from one group and giving it to another group. Well, that, that's a very problematic view biblically because God treasures private property. Thou shalt not steal is a statement about the sanctity of private property. To redistribute, for the state to redistribute wealth from one group to another is biblically pro problematic. Well, there's, a, there's another way to take care of the widow and the orphan, and that is to have sound economic policy that allows people in poverty to create wealth and then to learn how to steward their own wealth. That's the example we have with Boaz and Ruth in the book of Ruth, where we have a widow, Ruth, an impoverished widow, Ruth, and Ruth is participating in the development of her own wealth as she's working out in the field. A fifth value is genuine economic freedom, which candidate is most likely to promote genuine economic freedom. Now look, I've given you five values. You may say to me, Rod, those aren't, those aren't my values. Fine, you're a follower of Christ. You pick your five. What are your hierarchy of values? And take those from the Bible and ask yourself, which candidate is most likely to promote policies that are consistent with your hierarchy of values that you have derived from the Scriptures? You're an adult. 
You're a follower of Christ. You have the Bible. You're a believer priest. If you don't like my five values, figure out what your five biblical values are and ask the question, what candidate is most likely to promote policies consistent with those values? In other words, what I'm asking you to do is be like the Bereans. They searched the Scriptures daily to see if these things were true. I'm asking you to search the Scriptures to see what you should do. Take the emotion out of it. This, this, is, what I, this is what I see happening among, among a, lot of, a lot of followers of Christ. They get on Facebook, and they see an outrageous thing on Facebook, and they make their response. And then somebody else makes their response. And pretty soon you've got you've got conversation that is devolving into the gutter, the gutter. And if you make your decision about who to vote for this coming election cycle purely on the basis of emotion, you got two very flawed candidates. And if you make your decision on the basis of emotion, you will make a wrong decision. You will make a biblically uninformed decision. Take the emotion out of it. Look at it logically. Establish a hierarchy of values. And which candidate is most likely to promote policies that establish these values? If you don't like my values, pick your own from the Bible. And you make your decision based upon those values. Again, I'm asking you to take the emotion out of it. Put logic into it. Put biblical reason into it. One of my favorite authors is St. Augustine, Bishop of Hippo. Augustine was the champion of faith and reason. Augustine was brilliant at applying reason to thorny problems. We have a thorny problem coming up in 30 days. I'm asking you, vote on the basis of policies and principles, not an emotion. Okay, one final thing. So maybe some of you say, Rod, I still can't do it. Still can't do it. I still can't vote in the presidential election. I would say, fine, that's your prerogative. Still go to the voting booth and vote for senators and congressmen or women and county commissioners and mayors and city councilmen who will embrace principles consistent with your biblical hierarchy of values. Don't stay home if you don't like the presidential candidates. You still go to the voting booth and you cast your voting, your, 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 your vote as a steward of the founding documents of which you have as a talent. Wow. That was a lot. Let's stand for a closing prayer. Father in heaven, we want to say thank you that you are the God of the universe who loves us. We want to thank you that you are the God of the universe who has given us rights and privileges that are so easy to take for granted. Father God, we submit ourselves to you and ask that we could steward those well. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, I'm welcome to your feedback. If you don't like what I said, you won't offend me. Come and talk to me about it. Have a great week.